Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Whether you're taking on a new garden that's a blank canvas, overgrown with weeds or a mature garden, it's an exciting and daunting process. Plantsman and garden designer Nick Bailey is best known to many of us as one of the presenters of Gardener's World. After 30 years of creating and managing gardens for other people, ranging from large public spaces to small domestic plots and across four different continents, he's now got a new garden of his own in Northamptonshire. I'm Catherine Mansley, digital editor of Gardener's World magazine, and I caught up with Nick to get his designer tips and tricks for creating a new garden, how to do that on a small budget, and how to make the most of a small space. So, Nick, welcome to the Gardener's World magazine podcast. Thank you very much. Good to see you. You've moved out of London and up to Northamptonshire. Why did you decide to make the move and how are you finding your new life in the countryside? It's actually, it's really an interesting little enclave of North Northamptonshire because I can list off 10 kind of really well-known gardeners, garden designers and garden writers and everybody seems to have clustered around that area. And I think there are two sort of major factors for that. One is that it looks like the Cotswolds. The second factor is it's half the price of the Cotswolds. So it's it's a great great spot. But um, no, for me, it was to be closer to family. And, um, you know, I've been in London for, gosh, 15, 15 plus years. And I kind of just thought, you know, this is... You know, they say when a man's bored of London, he's bored of life. Well, I was just bored of the commuting and pollution. And I thought there's, there's a lot more life to be had out in the countryside as well. So time to move up there. And to be honest, it's just about having more space as well. You know, I had my comically titled uh, Garden in Crystal Palace, which, of course, was in contrast to Longmeadow called Short Plot. Um, and lovely, lovely space, but it was north facing and not uh, not particularly big. And so I've sort of quadrupled the garden space I've got now. And so it really just allows me to play and experiment and do all of those things on a larger scale. And uh, means I don't have to mess up uh, clients' gardens trying stuff out. I can do it on my own. Viewers of Gardener's World will have seen your rented garden, which you transformed into a flower-filled haven remarkably quickly. Um, and now you have a new garden of your own. What's what's your new garden like currently? To say to start with, it is north facing, but because it's it's a historic cottage, very lovely arts and crafts cottage. It means that I get the east light and then actually by kind of 11 in the morning, the whole garden is uh, is covered in sunshine. So that's a great start. It's a much longer garden. So I've had sort of square gardens for the last, last few years, but um, this is kind of six metres wide and nearly 30 metres long. So it gives me great kind of, well, I'll talk more about design later, but it gives all sorts of, I think, more interesting opportunities. It's a, a relatively blank canvas, so there's a whole sort of series of shrubs down um, down one side at the moment. But um, otherwise, there's lots of opportunities, and there's a there's a kind of space which is going to make a very obvious courtyard. There's an existing summer house, um, which is sort of slightly uh, slightly dubious on the waterproof front, but um, I will sort that out, and I think that will end up becoming my my garden office. What's lovely is it's got a, a fabulous stone wall down one side, ancient stone wall, which I've discovered on the deeds. Is mine. So um, I want to make the the most of that. And, um, yeah, you know, just it makes such a beautiful backdrop. It's all the whole village is local stone. And I'm in the in the sort of conservation area, which is which is all very lovely, but slightly restrictive. So I've got to stick to single glazed windows and just suck up the heating costs and, uh, and all of that stuff. But that stone, actually, the fact that it's the back of the house and the sort of main wall through the garden creates that beautiful kind of light honey tone, which is 
I don't know, I just think it works with virtually every kind of plant and flower colour. It just makes a beautiful backdrop. So that's great. And then there's an area tucked behind the summer house or garden office to be, which um, is just a series of sheds. And I think, you know, if you can muster that in a garden just to have the dirty area, you know, we've all got those kind of things that are just useful to hold on to, whether that's plastic pots or bamboo canes or recycled, you know, I've saved all my all my compost, for example, from the uh, from the last property. And so I've now got a bag at the back there, which is literally a cubic metre of kind of peat-free compost, which um, is obviously drained through all its nutrition. But it's kind of, you know, good, good soil improvement material. And then, of course, absolutely key is the soil. And I think I'm quite blessed having um, endured London clay for years and years and years, both in my own garden and at, uh, at Chelsea Physic Garden. This garden seems to be that perfect, um, you know, that perfect mix. The, the mythic. Uh, yeah, the thing that always gets um, listed in, in, in magazines, in Indeed. fact. That, moisture retentive but free but draining. free draining, <laughs> yeah, every time. Um, but miraculously, it is that, and it seems to be like a, a silty, sandy clay kind of nicely balanced mix. So I'm really excited. I mean, I may dig down through the first six inches and discover it's solid blue clay. But, um, but no, generally going on the area, I think, um, I think I'm going to be blessed with, you know, fairly good soil and lots of sunlight. So it's, it's lots of opportunities. Wonderful. And what are your plans for it? It's kind of, um, it's not narrow, but it's a, it's a long garden. And so I think that so many properties in the UK, older properties tend, you know, tend to be that where it's terrace properties, ex-council properties, which I always think are incredible bargain, you know, really well built and those very, very long kind of 150 foot gardens. And I think moving into a space like that, whether it's for my own garden or whether, whether it's for clients, if you kind of immediately see that space when you when you walk into it, the, the the mystery and the allure and everything else is just immediately washed away. And so there's always this term that I use with, with garden garden design, which I think it should basically a garden should be a series of flirtations and revelations. And so basically I like to divide the space up into a, into a series of rooms. You know, I'm very much of the arts and crafts sort of style of gardening, a, a modern version of it. But um, but thinking about you know what I. Think think are the greatest gardens in this country, Sissinghurst, Hidcote, Dexter. They're all in that sort of arts and crafts, roomed kind of style. And so by breaking up a long space, whether that's through planting, fencing, walls, structures, pergolas, not completely solidly, but but allowing those little those little flirtations, those suggestions of what's in the next area. I think it makes it a lot more a lot more exciting and dynamic. And you can do it in the smallest and skinniest of spaces. But it suddenly changes it. And, and the magic bit that happens every time, of course, is it feels way bigger than it truly is because you've got those series of rooms rather than just that one hit wonder you walk in and see see the whole lot. And so often when clients have got small gardens, they kind of immediately say to me, oh, we want to strip everything out and go back to the fences so we can see all of it. And I said, you know, that I promise you that will do the exact reverse of what you're, what you're trying to achieve. So, yeah, much better to sort of break up the space. And I'm just going to say it one more time, flotation and revelation. That's the way forward. And how do you approach designing a space? I mean, obviously you're a, a designer, but do you have it all planned and drawn out in advance? Or is it in your head? What's, what's your approach? What was nice with the um, rented place I was in that featured on the on the show, with that I had a basic sort of structure in mind. I had the palette of plants that uh, that I particularly wanted to use. But what was so lovely is it was a, effectively a kind of a portable herbaceous border. So I just kept tweaking, was able to sort of move things around. So I knew very roughly what I wanted to do. 
with this new garden, I've kind of you know moved through a series of different ideas. Now, if if you look back to that um, that first film of my rented garden, there I am very diligently stood over a, a drawing board, which is I think what most people perceive. You know, that's when the the design happens. Of course, the reality for myself and I, and I dare say most designers is it happens on a train at kind of uh, you know three o'clock in the afternoon and you scribble it down on a napkin or whatever. That's for me. That's when I'm at the sort of most free thinking state. If I shove myself in front of a drawing board with a blank piece of paper or a you know a survey of the site, I sort of struggle that and I I tend to design in 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 three D. So I'm literally building it in my head and it's very easy to sort of fall into that trap of kind of doing crow's view design if you're just purely doing it on paper. And what I mean by that is, you know, nobody but the crows is going to see the plan layout of the garden. The, the reality of the garden is what it feels like in 3D. And that that's, you know, that's taken me years to kind of develop and to be able to, I guess, visualize in that way. But that's how I tend to, to ultimately build it. Then do like scrappy sketches and, um, you know, I'm not the, the best artiste, but I tend to do very quick perspective sketches as well at that point. And that just gives me a sense of how it's going to feel and how those layers are going to work in the in the garden. And it's something I often do with, with clients as well. I can just quickly do a perspective and suddenly, because I think a lot of people struggle to perceive, a, you know, what a plan is going to be in reality. And so to suddenly drop you down to, to eye level, I think works. And I mean, certainly when I did the, um, I did a uh, Main Avenue garden for Chelsea Flower Show in 2016, still traumatized to this day. <laughs> but um, for that, what I did was to, to, to sort of 3D model it, but not in any sort of fancy CAD way. So when I did a degree in landscape design, and unfortunately, it was so many years ago that uh, they weren't really teaching CAD. It was only just at its infancy. So I was very much of the kind of drawing board school. But what I tend to do now is just use the sort of thin foam board you can get. And you can literally very quickly kind of bulk that up and, and build and model out different things. And then I literally sort of stand them on my drawing board and go down to human eye level and slide backwards and forwards and kind of look through and, and perceive it. And then the slightly crazy thing I did, but again, I, sometimes I would do this for clients, is to roughly 3D model in the garden how something could work. And so that's what I did for Chelsea. I literally laid it out on my, on my father's land uh, and basically with a series of uh, bamboo canes, cable ties, and plastic garden chairs, I built how the structure and form was going to work. And so it's something there's um, uh, some clients I'm working with in North London at the moment. And they sort of approved the concept, but they were a bit unsure about some of the ideas in spite of the fact I'd done these perspective sketches. And so I literally said, okay, have you got some some dust sheets around the around the house? And have you got a few garden chairs and a few bamboo canes? And so I very roughly modelled up these pergolar areas, these blocks of planting. And so I would say, if you've got just a few loose materials kicking around at home, you can try things out and think, okay, if I put this pergola here, what are the ramifications of this? How is it going to feel? Where, the sh- where are the shadows going to be cast? And you could do that with, you know, 10 bamboo canes and some cable ties. The world's a better place with cable ties. Yeah, such a, a physical way for people to to get a sense of of what their gardens. Yeah, exactly. Like. And if you you know if you don't have that kind of immediate sort of confidence in what you want, it's just a lovely way of trying it out, really, without having to to commit. You can just see how it's how it's going to feel. And something I'll do as well quite often is to then photograph that three D model, and then I can sort of sketch over it, so I can start to put color or texture into it, and kind of go, yeah, is, is that going to work or not? And and what are the first steps that you would recommend someone take if they've if they've got a new garden? How do they begin? What are the first things someone should do? 
I think absolutely key. I mean, in the process of buying this place, I'd already sort of formulated a few thoughts, new things I'd wanted. And that's immediately, I mean, I only moved in three weeks ago, and that's immediately changed since being there, because I'm now observing the sun track. And I think that's so key to a, to a garden. So you can obviously look at where the North Point sits and where you think the sun's going to move. But obviously, all the surrounding buildings and all those things are going to have an effect on it. And so I've now realized that the sort of courtyard area needs to be about three meters bigger than I imagined it would need to be in order to get the west light in the in the evening. So it's great in the morning, gets the east light, and then just just by having that little bit of extra space. So I guess it's just about observing the observing the garden really and seeing um, I guess it's uh, without being too too poncy, getting the genus loci or the you know the spirit of the place and what it feels like. And then just some of the real sort of tedious practicalities as well. It's worth thinking about those up front. You can do some beautiful, sweepy, Peterdorf-esque kind of design, you know, beautiful planting, and then go, but where's the compost bin going and where am I going to dry my knickers? There's got to be those practical considerations. And so at the moment, I've realized I need a log store, I need a bike store, and I need a bin store. And so I'm now kind of thinking, how can I functionally place them where I need them so I can get to all of those things, um, but also make them make them beautiful. And so I'm thinking I'll probably do them in, um, you know, the cedar shingles you get, the sort of tile, uh, timber tiles. And they're sort of quite a sustainable product and they make great roofing and you can make sort of sides and the like. So thinking about that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's those sort of those practical upfront thoughts. And, um, you know, I do lots of public speaking and something I always sort of cite is if you look back to uh, sort of take architecture as an example of design, if you look back to Elizabethan architecture, if you looked at those, those big stately homes on plan, what you see, the plan is basically a giant E, you know, it was a nod to the reigning monarch. And so the architect would design the outside and then slot all the rooms into into the middle of it. And of course, this huge shift happened at the turn of the last century. And um, I'm sure you've come across this French architect called Le Corbusier. And he said, let's do it in a completely different way. And so with this, this iconic building of his, Villa Savoie, and of course, this applies completely to gardens as well. He said, right, I want to have a south-facing lounge with a very large window. So he literally drew out the square of the lounge, and that's how he started. And I want a dining room to run off that to the east side. And then running off that, probably heading north, I want the kitchen. And so literally the frame or the form of the garden was led by its components rather than the components being thrown into an existing shape. And so it's that kind of design principle of form follows function. And so think about those functional things. And you can literally just block in on a very rough plan. Right, I need this to be here. I need to be able to get to the shed in the middle of the winter. And once you've got all of those sort of core functional things in place, then you can move into the fabulous artistry and the spatial division and the color compositions and, uh, and all of that. But get the dull stuff sorted first. And I often think with the, with the gardens at Chelsea Flower Show, you know, they're judged as real gardens, but they're they're such odd gardens in so many ways because, you know, where's the compost bin? Where's the where's, where's the, the washing, washing line? line? <laughs> um, how do you get in and out of the house? And the other oddity, of course, that people always forget about Chelsea Gardens, as, as incredible as they are, and I'm so proud that it's our, our show and I think we do it best in the, in the world, is the fact that those gardens are designed to be viewed from the outside in and virtually every other garden in the world is from the inside out. Um, and so, again, it kind of shifts that. But, but I would say to people, yeah, just be in the space as much as you, as you possibly can and, and just see how you're, how you're living in it and what you need from it. Are you an advocate of waiting a whole year before you start doing anything? Oh, OK, so on paper, I think that's a great idea. In reality, <laughs> I'm not sure I could, uh, I could hold myself that long. I mean, 
Yeah, it's it's a good idea in the sense of you can see what's existing in the garden, and you know there might be some beautiful patch of colchicum, you know the uh, the autumn flowering crocus that that doesn't appear until September, and so if you just hack through that area, you'll immediately lose that plant. So. I think it's a fine line, but I think the reality for most people, once you've kind of finally got your hands on a garden, I think it would be quite um, quite torturous to hold on for a year. So for me, I suppose my last place, I held off for a couple of months and did a bit of observation. And that, as I say, that was more to do with, with sun track and practical functional things and, uh, and then just hoped the best when I started digging around that I wasn't going to destroy some rare, rare specimen tucked away in the back of the garden. Yeah, if someone has moved into a new garden, garden and it's it's already full of quite a lot of plants and they're they're not sure what those plants are if if they're you know worth saving if they need rejuvenating have you got any tips on how people can take a stab at whether a plant is worth keeping or yeah, absolutely. What they need to do is buy a book called Revive by Nick Bailey. Um, now, I mean, uh, actually, that book is is very much focused on that is sort of taking on a taking on a garden, but. Um, the majority of the majority of plants, the majority of shrubby plants, will rejuvenate from a from a hard prune, and I think most people are, are terrified of doing it. You know, the classic thing you see in so many gardens is old hybrid tea roses that are five foot high with bare grey stems, tuft of foliage at the top, and a few wizened flowers. And I always say to clients, be bold, be brave, chop them right down to a foot or you know even less from the ground. And I've not come across a rose in my life yet that won't rejuvenate fabulously from that. And so I think it's a combination of things. All the apps now that are doing plant ID are incredibly, uh, incredibly useful. And, you know, most average gardens tend to have fairly identifiable plants. There's not likely to be some, you know, rare cacti from Texas tucked away in the corner. So once you can ID them, then it's fairly, uh, fairly straightforward to go onto fabulous websites such as gardenersworld.com or elsewhere to find out how they might uh, prune or rejuvenate or sort of bring those things back to life. And then in terms of actually whether there's there's truly life in the in the plant, obviously there's that sort of classic test if it's out of season that you just scratch off the bark and look for look for green growth. But a real indicator for me over the years is if you've got lichen growing on a shrub, it's basically on its way out. And that's based on the fact that lichen doesn't want to grow or hold onto something that's expanding underneath it. So in other words, once a, a shrub has stopped growing or a tree has stopped growing, then it's far more likely to start getting a lichen. And it can look quite pretty, but it normally uh, indicates that it's towards the end of its end of its life. So that's a key thing to, to look out for. Uh, and of course, lichen, if people have not uh, not come across it, is that weird stuff that grows on gravestones and, uh, and slabs and sometimes it's grey, sometimes it's yellow. There's many species. And it's kind of the um, the plant world's equivalent of coral, really, isn't it? It's a funny thing because it's a combination of both fungi and plant all, all at once. And it's a lovely thing. And it can indicate air quality as well, so both good and, and bad. Uh, so different species will tell you what the air's like in your, in your area. But, yeah, that's a key thing to look out for. And then also I tend to tend to look for, for dormant buds or potential breaks from the base. So is the new growth that, that's starting to kind of, particularly on shrubby plants, that's starting to appear from there, that would generally suggest you could do a hard prone. There's also lots of plants I think people are, 
are really fearful about that sort of have surprising dormant buds. So camellia, for example, which can get quite old and gnarled, have these very smooth stems at the base, lots of foliage at the top, not a lot going on at the bottom. I give you a 100% guarantee if you chop that thing to a foot off the ground, within kind of six weeks or so, the whole of the trunks will be covered in these little blisters, which are dormant buds, which have been triggered into life. And so something that seems really unlikely like that actually will beautifully kind of uh, rejuvenate. So well worth doing. And that's obviously if you if you're lucky enough to have lots of established plants in your garden. What are some of the things you need to know before you can start introducing new plants to a garden? That sun track is absolutely absolutely vital. So just in terms of, oh, here's a sort of useful useful tip. If you're looking around for uh, for plants, if something says it needs full sun, um, what that means in practical growing terms is to have a minimum of six hours a day. And so even my north-facing garden when I was in London, in theory, it's kind of a shady garden, but it did get six hours in the morning. And so that meant that I was able to grow, you know, loads of things that theoretically need to be in full sun. Six, um, six months is enough. I think the other absolutely vital one, of course, is soil. Get to, know your, get to know your soil. Now, if you want to really go for it, you can dig a soil profile pit. And that's basically sort of going three spits depth down. And so the way you do that is to sort of mark out a square roughly kind of 80 by 80 centimetres and remove all of that soil down to a spit's depth. You then remove half of that uh, of that sort of excavation down another spit's depth and then half of that another spit's depth and basically will give you a profile of the of the soil because of course we all often just focus on the on the topsoil but underlying problems in soil are often happening in the subsoil or the sub-subsoil. Um, and so that can be compaction. So there's all sorts of things you can, you can look out for. So the clay is particularly blue. That can sort of suggest waterlogging. If you dig down that deep, sometimes you can discover that, in fact, the soil's anaerobic. It's, it's airless. And so all of those things are really useful. What you can then do, the answer to absolutely everything, whether it's too wet, too dry, low nutrition, too free draining, bad structure, uh, whatever, what's the answer? Add some organic matter. Add some organic matter <laughs> every time. And so, yeah, that, that magic kind of works to, to sort everything out. And, of course, there's many different different forms you can go for and what's um, inexpensive and local to you. So it could be composted green waste. It could be um, mushroom compost. Uh, it could be a you know conventional bought in uh, in compost or uh, or manure, but I think adding that to the soil is 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 absolutely key for most gardens from from the outset just to kind of bring that life back in. And when you're spending money on plants, what's worth investing in? What's worth splashing out on? Um, and where can you save a bit of money? And how can gardeners do that? I think with. With most plants, what you're paying for is, is time, time and handling of the plant. And so, you know, if you're buying bedding plants in, in multi-packs, the, um, the sad truth of the matter is they may never have been touched by human hand. Um, so entirely grown, planted, moved around, loaded onto a lorry by effectively robots and, uh, and machines. But what that means is they're very inexpensive. I think in terms of sort of doing initial plant selection, especially if it's a new garden, I think there's a there's a series of both kind of herbaceous and shrubby plants that I tend to go for again and again and again because they've got that sort of fast bulking 
quality. So something I mentioned on the on the TV show is the Cape Cape Mallow. So it's related to Lavatera, which I guess lots of people people know. But this one comes from Table Mountain, and so it's called Anastodontia El Rayo, and that's something that you can buy as a you know a nine centimeter pot for kind of four or five pounds in springtime. And by the end of that year, that will be a plant that's kind of a metre and a half wide, two metres tall and completely covered in flower. And so I think it's really worth thinking about. And I, I see that as a high value plant because it's a relatively low investment, but it delivers so much from its from its first season. And I guess you can think of gardens in terms of the way woodlands are established. Uh, long-term woodlands tend to have the sort of the primary establishes, so the so the things that um, uh, that grow away very quickly. So the sort of birches planted on mass, but actually between them are the oaks, which will ultimately be the long-term long-term forest. So I tend to put gardens together in that way. So the, the Anastodontia, the Cape Mallow, will do its thing very quickly. But then I'll perhaps suggest to the client that they invest in a, I don't know, a very beautiful species magnolia, for example, which won't look like anything for its first three, four, five years. But it's an expensive plant. But if that can be sort of slowly growing away, and that will ultimately give you the sort of two, three, four metre high plant that the Anastodontia has initially done, then it's worth kind of thinking in those terms. Absolutely. You mentioned the Cape Mallow. When you move into a new garden, so often you're just faced with loads of bare soil and bare fences and you're just desperate to cover them with plants as quickly as you can. Are there any other plants that are really good for giving that quick results? Yeah, there's loads of things I, I like to use. So thinking more on the um, the herbaceous front, there's a fantastic thing called Petrina, which can grow from, from seed each year. There's Petrina sonchifolia. And it's it's one of my kind of star plants because it flowers for sort of four or five months. It goes from a seedling to a two meter flowering plant in about three months, and then just does that for the rest of the the rest of the season. So again, it's one of those really fast fast bulking things. And then I'm a real fan of the sort of increasing range of shrubby salvias that you can get hold of now. There are things, uh, I suppose they're almost a cliche now, but things like Salvia Amistad is a fantastic plant. Again, something that's a, a nine centimetre plant in February will be, uh, you know, a two metre high, very full, very floriferous plant by the end of the, the end of the season. And so I think they're, they're worth considering. And then some of the herbaceous plants that are just naturally large by their nature. So some of the uh, prairie plants I tend to use a lot. So something like there's a lovely uh, helianthus, perennial helianthus called Lemon Queen. And that's, it flowers in an unusual season as much as it sort of starts in September time and then runs all the way through to the autumn. It's a buttery yellow uh, and in its first year it'll be up to two metres and uh, and flowering away. So I think those, and also as well another prairie plant, Eupatorium purpureum, fantastic thing again and that will go up to nearly two metres in its, in its first year and sort of bulk out fairly quickly. And then thinking in the long term, Plants of that nature are great because you can make a, a relatively small investment in the first place, so maybe seven or eight pounds for that plant. But two, three years down the line, you can start to split it and move it and divide it and, uh, you know, really increase its value. And so that's the plants taken care of. You you mentioned the, the seating area that you're planning to create and kind of making sure that it's big enough to catch the sun. It's, it's very easy to just, you know, go out and buy some massive seating set from a, a DIY store and, and not really plan how it's going to fit into the space. What's your approach to creating a seating area? I mean, I think there's a few kind of absolutely key design 
principles. So if a table is ever any less than about 80 centimetres wide, it's going to be problematic in terms of getting plates on it, having people sitting opposite each other. So I'd say that's a bare minimum for table width. The other thing to consider is is your, you know, once the uh, chairs are tucked under the table, they don't take a lot of space. But actually, if you want to make it sort of feel reasonable and spacious, you're looking at about a metre each side of the table to be able to comfortably pull chairs in and out and move past when they're, when they're there. So I think that's that's key from a sort of spatial perspective. And so... Personally, I would never sort of just go out and buy furniture and hope that it that it fits. I'd sort of almost design. I'm, I'm constantly doing this for clothes. I'm a nightmare. I've pre-designed the exact thing I want to buy before I go and wander up Oxford Street, whatever it is. And then, of course, I can't find it. But um, uh, and the other thing as well, I'd just I'd just say is. I'm increasingly discouraging clients from going for the the plastic rattan furniture, which is incredibly trendy at the moment, and that's based off the fact uh, of me seeing it in um, in the Mediterranean over the last few years, and it cannot cope with UV. It is not UV stable, um, and so very very quickly. I mean, I know the UK is not quite as uh, as sunny as the Med, but within sort of five, six years, most of those rattans are starting to flake on the surface. And within 10 years, they're just cracking up and literally feeding the dolphins with microplastics, which um, which we don't want to do, right, folks? Um, so I think there are far more uh, sustainable products out there, particularly cedar, I think, is uh, is a great product because it's got that natural resistance to, uh, uh, to weather and dampness and everything else. It's got the natural oils in it. Um, pine is, of course, a shorter, shorter term proposition. Oak, I do slightly worry about sustainability of it. I know a lot of our kind of mass production oak stuff is coming from unsustainable Central European forests, whereas cedar I know is one of the most sustainable and it looks after itself and it holds on to that lovely kind of gingery tone as well. So I think it's got many, many qualities. And hard landscaping is obviously usually one of the most expensive elements of a garden. Are there any tips for attractive hard landscaping that you can do on a budget? I think probably a good a good starting place is there are various marketplaces online that one can can go on to and I, I constantly, uh, constantly find, and this is sort of with friends and family, that there are people with patios, with terraces, with block paving that basically want rid of them. So if you're prepared to go and lift them yourself and throw them in the back of the car, half the time you can literally get your hard landscape for nothing. It can be extremely expensive process. I was chatting to a guy, guy this morning, and um, he eventually settled on having his his drive, big drives at about 150 square meters. He eventually settled on having it done as, as block paving, uh, which cost about seven thousand pounds to install, which is pretty pricey. But he'd looked at um, impressed concrete, you know, where a pattern is pressed into the surface, and that was going to be twenty thousand um, pounds. Uh, or if it went for kind of you know the resinous gravel material on the top, it's going to be twenty five thousand. So it can be. A vastly expensive thing. The other thing I'd say as well is wherever you can get get samples. One of the sort of alternative, uh, more sort of economic surfaces of of the last sort of fifteen twenty years is is Indian stone, and it's I, I do again quite slightly question the ethics and sustainability of how it's um, how it's sourced. But what you'll find is with those packs, you you literally need to see them or get multiple samples because you can get real extreme differences in them. And so within apparently a set of beige or you know mint coloured or, or, or whatever, 
And so as well, when clients pushed me into a corner and made me use Indian stone for them, um, I will always kind of order at least 20% more than we need because there are so many that you have to reject in the in the process. Um, but then, of course, you can then load them up onto a, an online uh, forum and, uh, and hand them on to somebody else. And as well, uh, if you can find kind of local auction houses, it's really surprising. You do get these kind of, for example, old stable blocks, uh, you know, those kind of beautiful, um, they tend to be kind of a, a clay product, but quite a deep blue with a, with a lattice cut into the surface. And I've regularly encountered those and, and similar materials at, at auction. So it's worth sort of digging around in that way. And as I say, looking at the freebies and the sort of uh, free cycle ads and the like is a great way of great way of doing it. But even, you know, what I always used to think of as the the cheapest of products, that tiny amount of gravel that I put down in my uh, my rented house was 156 quid. You know, it's 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 fairly costly uh, fairly costly stuff. Um, and I think as well, just looking at the last few years of of show gardens, if it's well done, crazy paving with a real mix of products can really work. And I think one of the nicest ways I've seen it done is not necessarily the kind of cracked earth, random shapes, but is to have a whole mix of materials. And so this gives you license to kind of beg, steal and borrow all sorts of different things. And effectively, uh, I'm doing lots of hand motions here, which is great on a podcast. But if you can have a series of bricks, slates, old terracotta tiles or whatever, you can literally use them in a sort of square gridded format and get them to sort of interlink with each other. It takes a bit of bit of artistry and a bit of playing around with, but actually you can get a beautiful kind of surface finish by repeating a you know, particular material all the way through, but having several materials coalescing together. Crazy paving making a comeback. You had it here first. (laughs) Maybe, yeah. And in a small garden, your boundaries are often almost as large as your floor space. Uh, What are your tips for making the most of your boundaries? So various various different things. I mean, I always go for this 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 Japanese idea of uh, of sakaye, which is is basically the borrowed borrowed landscape. So most gardens, of course, in Japan are, are really quite small, and so they've they've advocated this this idea for years. And so basically, it's sort of looking around and across your boundaries and the key places that you sit in the garden, and then seeing what lies beyond your boundaries. So if your next door neighbour's got a particularly beautiful cherry tree, do you remove or take a section out of your boundary? Do you drop it down to, to five foot or do you create planting in that particular area that then frames what lies in the distance? And so it's got that sort of, it, it tricks the eye effectively and kind of extends your, your landscape beyond your, own, beyond your own garden. So I think that's a, a useful thing to do. Again, kind of going back to what I was mentioning earlier in clients wanting to strip right back to the to the fences, that always has the reverse effect. And so using a bulky climber can work quite well, but you often tend to end up with a very bare base and then a big kind of lot of growth hanging over the hanging over the top. And so I would tend to, in a smaller space, go for shrubs and wall shrubs that can be kept far more sort of flat against the boundaries. And so there are just lots of good I don't know, pretty vertical plants. So something like Nandina domestica, I think, is a is a fabulous plant. It's um, you know, it sometimes gets called a sacred bamboo, but of course it's actually a it's a woody plant. And it's brilliant because it's doing something in every season. It's an evergreen, but it takes on autumn colour. It has fabulous white flowers in spring, palescent berries through summer, red berries in autumn and through winter. And it's skinny, can sit up against the the boundary and do something kind of interesting for you year round. And equally there's something I'm considering at 
at home is there's uh, a couple of the miscanthus, which are much, much bigger. So there's um, floridulus or sacriflora, whatever its, uh, whatever its uh, latest name is. And that's a great plant because it sort of goes in its first season, it'll go to sort of two metres and then sort of two and a half, three metres. And so, the, again, the point of that is it can stay quite skinny, but it's got movement, it's got sound, um, it's got that sort of softness. And then when it comes to actually kind of flanking the, the walls themselves, I would, or the whatever you've got, fences or whatever on the outside, I think some of those kind of classic wall shrubs that you can really push relatively flat, but to stop that kind of big billowiness on the on the top, which is which is sort of what eats into the garden, uh, it can be a great route to go down. So there's a there's a lovely thing if you guys don't know this, a lovely plant from New Zealand called Cleanthus, and it looks like a series of kind of red pelican beaks hung in a hung in a cluster, and it's a, it's a pea relative. So it's got beautiful pinnate leaves, flowers really early in the year. There's a white form and a deep red form, and that's the kind of plant that absolutely loves to be sort of splayed. It's a light open shrub, so it's very happy to be put flat against. Uh, you know, a wall or a fence uh, and displays for you beautifully. You mentioned in a small garden, people often trying to take everything back to the fences to make as much space as possible. What are some of the other kind of common mistakes that people often make in in new gardens or small gardens? I think one of those things that sort of commonly strikes me in small gardens is is a lack of continuity. So even if you've got a small space, I think it's always worth sort of pre-deciding on right, I'm going to have some topiary in the garden. Is it going to be a box? Is it going to be a cone? Is it going to be a swell? And whatever I choose, I'm going to repeat that three times through the garden. What are the two grasses that I absolutely love that cover the seasons? And instead of just having one here and one the other end of the garden, let's have five of each and have them scattered through. And so I think that's the the, the sort of the, the trap that people fall into is a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that. And it just loses that sort of unity or, or purity of the garden. So I think repeat, repeat, repeat. And um, yeah, it really helps. And have you seen people dive into a new garden and be too overenthusiastic and, and kind of get carried away and make mistakes? I think the classic thing that, that people will often do is, you know, acquire the new garden, go to the go to the garden centre, buy all the stuff they love that's in flower at that moment, put it all in the garden, and then two months later there's there's no flowers, it looks very dull. And so uh, a nice way to do it, once you've got that sort of that continuity in place, that continuity of pots and plants and materials and trees, is then to sort of get into the habit of going to the garden centre, the nursery once a month and buying what's in flower. And if you do that for 12 months of the year, over one or two years, you're suddenly then ensuring that you've got kind of 365 five days of interest happening on your plot. And if you had to choose just the one single most important thing people should do when they're making a new garden, what would that be? Oh, I would say the single biggest thing is, if you can, get some water in there. Um, water obviously just brings so much to a, to a garden, whether that's sort of refraction of light and um, it just, it's instant life in a garden, of course, you know, put it in and they will they will come. And, you know, the second you've got a, a pond or some some kind of water in your garden, you'll do fantastic wildlife support and uh, and provision. But also you've got, you've got sound, you've got movement, you've got light and refraction and it only needs to be the tiniest thing. I, I did a, um, a barrel pond several years ago on Gardeners World uh, TV and the, the family have reported back. And, you know, literally within weeks there were pond skates and various things. And then after the first year it was just bursting with life. And so that also has the, um, you know, the added benefit of bringing in multiple species that then support the rest of the garden and make it more biodiverse. So I'd say where you can, get get the water in. 
Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts and never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app.